politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house on Thursday, June 4th. You might not be a rioter, a looter, a beater, or a murderer, but you do matter to us here, even if your voice is stifled elsewhere. And folks, we need to raise our voice. When I was a kid, I used to be scared of barking dogs. I would run away from them, and then I always found that they they chase you. And then I realized you just stand your ground, and they stop. Why is it that the more the left barks, the more vicious their bark is, the more the phony right and the phony Republican Party just run? When you look at the conflation, the really the convergence of two earth-shattering events that are once-in-a-century events, the lockdown fascism and all of its dangerous, destructive analogs and the rioting and everything that it really reflects, everything it portends and everything it will um, induce in the coming days and weeks. This is something biblical. This is something spiritual. It's something well beyond us. And you would think with everything going on, the degree of absurdity, the degree of illogical evil that is emanating from both of these things, the, the degree of anecdotes and talking points and data that a few of us have assembled on both of these issues, you would think would make it so easy for your typical Republican politician and high-profile conservative, uh, so-called conservative media figure that has an audience, it would make it so easy for them to provide the boldest contrast, bolder than ever, from the left and really give voters and give the American public a straight-up choice between good and evil like Elijah Mount Carmel did. But instead, it seems like the more they move over to the left and the more extreme the left gets, the more the so-called right, while faking to fight it, validates 90% of their premise, picks like 5% to have a phony fight over, and then solidifies the left's advancement and really securing of political territory that they never should have held. And we wind up going backwards. And we're seeing like, for example, I mean, lockdown. Everyone was terrified. Oh my gosh, people are terrified of dying of contagious disease. Daniel, there's nothing we can do. But even if that was true on week one, which it really never was, we assembled so much good information that a coherent movement could have easily pushed back against this, easily militated against the pre- premise of lockdowns, easily jujitsued it by showing how they are the ones killing more people, not just in the economic devastation and even the collateral damage of cancer patients and heart patients and transplant patients, but from COVID itself, as we proved that, that the panic induced the whole business of putting positive patients in nursing homes. I mean, if nothing else, forget about the morality, just the political talking points were so powerful. And and it's just a handful of us using this and nothing. Now we have another contrived crisis that, as we've been talking about, really tracks very closely in terms of the optical illusions they use to create a broader narrative where the reality is actually the opposite of what they say. But the irony is that the riots run into headwinds of the lockdown. I mean, it proved the whole thing to be a farce. You see massive, massive packed crowds, thousands of people on top of each other. Now for a week already, and there's no hospitalizations, no nothing, and Republicans won't even use that. Remember, much of the lockdown is still in place, and there is no effort by Republicans in any meaningful legislative way or even politically a political talking point way at a state or federal level, or most states, to push back against this. Where are we? Why are we like this? With us today is a very special guest I've been meaning to get on forever. Daniel Greenfield is a Shillman Journalism Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. No relation, by the way. Everyone mixes me up with David. Um, Most of his columns are at Front Page Magazine. Very prolific writer. 
Um, as you well know, I don't think too highly of most people in this phony movement. Uh, most of their writings or talking points are fluff. Uh, you don't learn anything from it. I'm, I'm making it a New Year's uh, resolution a little bit late into the year <laughs> to read more of Daniel's work. Um, always very insightful stuff, has stuff on the rise, stuff in general. But I want to talk about the health status of this movement with Daniel. Daniel, thanks. thank you so much for joining us today. It's uh, my pleasure. I've been an admirer of your work for a while now, and there are only so many people who actually get it. And what you summed up really gets it, because the GOP is a prisoner of the media. Um, what you get from GOP politicians is a debate over what the media says, but they get the reality from the media, which is why very recently when President Trump made the walk to the church, um, Republican senators in lockstep began saying, well, you know, uh, he... Uh, t- a peaceful protester should not be tear gassed uh, to make way for a photo op. And they accepted three false premises from the media and repeated them back. And this is the basic problem with the GOP. Even those members of the conservative movement who will uh, debate what the media says still begin with the premise of what the media says, which means when you have the lockdown, when you have the riots, when what's really going on is not what the media is saying, it's not even present in the media, they have no ability to access it. So so let's talk about the specific issue with the riots and branch out to the broad ailment that's that's ailing this movement, the lack of fortitude, the lack of of uh, courage, the lack of intellectual um, prowess, the lack of knowledge and principle of what they affirmatively do believe in. So, I mean, that's part of the problem. They cede ground because they don't have any ground. So the ground is just, I'm going to oppose the media and the Democrats in the abstract. But then again, they kind of get moved along with them. So let's use this as a case study. So what I find fascinating is, I want to see if you agree with my assertion. I know you've been writing about this and you could share some of your work with our listeners. Again, you go to Front Page Magazine. You could see uh, Daniel's work. You go to at Sultan Kanish, funny name there on Twitter. You could follow him. And Daniel, when I look at what's going on, so most conservatives, you know, ones that have bigger names than I do, um, they tend to not follow any issue until the media tells them it exists. Right. So that's that's the problem uh, from day one. They don't have their affirmative vision and research that they're doing all the time on a given issue. So naturally, they're predisposed to fall into a media narrative. Those of us who have followed the crime issue for a decade now, I'm um, really my entire life, but but really working on it the last decade, we've noticed that long before George Floyd, and we could talk about what happened, didn't happen there, long before George Floyd, Minneapolis in particular has seen an increase in crime. There is no deterrent. You have violent criminals being released there left and right. St. Paul, after 20 years of reduced crime, had a record year of homicides last year. Transit crimes, robberies are up, are, are up left and right. Um, it's augmented by the Somali clan tribal warfare you have in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood, some other areas um, in the, the Twin City area. And then you have a lot of these other cities which really have a similar dynamic where there's a bunch of career criminals that are now loose in the thousands, really accelerating from the COVID jailbreak. And so I'm not surprised when I see all of a sudden this spontaneous just criminality. It has nothing to do with some sort of deep held beliefs. It's just a matter of a bunch of criminals having an opportunity to commit crime. But it seems like a lot of our colleagues are like, well, look, you know, certainly the, the rioting's got to stop. You can't harm people. But yes, there is racial injustice. And we do need to, at the appropriate time, address it. McConnell and, and Lindsey Graham are talking about it. And then you have a lot of these conservative pundits that are like, well, it's Antifa. It's those white rich kids, which, you know, there's definitely truth to that. Um, but BLM, you know, they're, they're ruining the BLM protests. And and then there, and then final before I get your comment, I just want to throw one other thing into it. It's interesting that some of them are even blaming it on the lockdowns that you know, all these people have been cooped up. Now, what's funny is most of the ones saying that are actually the ones that were never seriously fighting the lockdown. And some of them were not even on the same side as us or in any meaningful way doing it now that it's no longer in contention. So then they're comfortable using that as their safe space. How do you take what I just put together and explain for our audience how this demonstrates the modus operandi of our broken conservative movement. For one thing, the rioters were never locked down. You were one of the few who was really writing and warning about the coronavirus jailbreak. 
And what we're seeing is actually the direct consequence of that. And this is something absolutely nobody in the conservative movement is really talking about. Uh, you're one of the few to even to discuss it. Uh, what we're seeing in New York City is not actually new. It did not come out of the blue. Um, property crimes after the coronavirus jailbreak went up 75%. You had a massive amount of burglaries because you had all these businesses that were shut down and they were being looted. We just were not seeing this in a massive way on camera, including battles with police, and you didn't have the framework of the protests. But there were huge numbers of break-ins of robberies in New York City. Um, what's happening now in Manhattan is just the same thing taken to the next level. Um, because the impetus for all this, as you already mentioned, were the jail releases. Hennepin County uh, reduced its jail population by 44%. New York City and Los Angeles released thousands of prisoners. Uh, what did anybody think they were going to do? Even if they wanted to go straight, they're not getting jobs uh, at a time when there's massive unemployment, when so many businesses are shut down. So the lockdown created the conditions for this. Um, this is the next stage of that. And absolutely, really, people in the conservative movement are not discussing this. They're debating this in terms of the media frame. Is there racism? How much racism is there in America? Is it just this particular police officer? Is it just the Minneapolis Police Department? Are all police officers responsible? No, we don't believe that. Uh, we're accepting some of their premise, but not all of their premise. And we're going to debate over that added 10%. We're going to um, retreat to the next position and then vigorously defend that position until we abandon that position and the next one and the next one after that. Why is it – I find it – can you explain this phenomenon? And, and and again, this occurs with every issue all the time, but we're seeing it here. So there's this trend on conservative media, conservative pundits, writers, talkers to now out-left the left. So it's like the, the idea is not to advance and hold certain ground for civilization, certain policy, legislative, legal outcomes – it's no, it's to have an ephemeral cheap talking point. Like you're a hypocrite. So one of the big things I'm seeing is like, you see, Democrats say that they care about blacks and and then they care about, you know, the way they're mistreated. But the reality is that these people like Joe Biden, they voted for that crime bill in 1994. And meanwhile, like that was the best bipartisan thing ever in our lifetime. It led to the most miraculous a social trend, positive social trend we've ever actualized, a 60% reduction in homicides and violent crime until it was turned up because we reversed the policies the last few years, which they want to accelerate. And in that are like, if you do the math, you're talking about tens of thousands of black lives that if if you would have been on the same trajectory of murders from the 70s and 80s, which were, you know, again, overwhelmingly African-Americans being murdered, you would have had tens of thousands of more black lives lost. And like that's a much easier talking point. It's a more powerful talking point. It's a more truthful one. And you're holding your ground of what you're supposedly here for. Why why do they always do that? It's absolutely insane that, yes, as you mentioned, the crime bill was very vital. The Republicans who were traditionally tough on crime are abandoning it. And, you know, when actually black voters have supported Republicans, it's largely been because of law and order. Um, Republicans in the past reached out and they got the support of black communities who were sick, who were drowning in gang warfare, were drowning in crack houses, and they got their support um, to actually fight crime. This is what black voters actually want from Republicans. Um, black voters don't want Republicans to try to be Democrats because they've already got Democrats. Um, Republicans are never going to be as good on crime, um, as pro-crime as the left is going to be. So this is a completely dead strategy. But this is also the result of fighting battles on social media where nobody thinks uh, past the next put down. Uh, there's no long-term goal. The left does have long-term policy goals. The right, in many cases, does not. And this is why the right embraced the entire pro-crime strategy of we're going to dismantle the war on crime, and this is somehow going to uh, score points with black voters, which it absolutely is not. Um, from the very beginning uh, of these riots, uh, Republicans who thought that this was going to that the riots are going to make the Democrats look bad have absolutely no sense of history. It was always going to be turned against Republicans because the people running these riots are on the left. Um, yet they decided to get behind this to say that there are legitimate grievances. You still keep hearing this from Republican politicians. There are legitimate grievances. Yes, the violence is to be the poor, but there are legitimate grievances. There are no legitimate grievances. There, are, Even if you accept the um, story of what happened in Minneapolis, there are no legitimate grievances that justify um, riots in D.C., in New York, in California, or anywhere else. 
Um, this is not about legitimate grievances. This is about a political war against the American people. And ultimately, it's about attacking Republicans and Trump. So Republicans who fail to realize that, who fail to actually go on the offensive, are going to be run over every single time. Run over or, or assuming that's they even care about it. I mean, this is what they want. They're, they're going to push with this, um, you know, more jailbreak legislation. And here's what scares me. And I'm wondering if you're seeing the same thing. I want to, again, merge the lockdowns and the riots. What I'm never scared by, you know, bold contrast where you have something that's clearly wrong and people clearly understand it. What I'm always scared about is the frog in the boiling water when they acculturate people to a new normal. So let's do the lockdowns and let's apply it to the riots. So you look at the lockdowns. Right. So you had a complete shutdown. Everyone knew it was unsustainable. It wasn't normal. You can't live a life that way. And it wasn't going to go on indefinitely. So there was no concern of people just, you know, somehow becoming acclimated to a permanent lockdown. But what I felt the left did is because Republicans, again, they would always look for the cheap shot. Like, could you please maybe have a church opened or or, like, you know, you know, rather than say this entire thing is counterintuitive, it's wrong. It doesn't help. It kills more people seize the moral high ground. They agree to it. They fund it. They pass all the legislation, encouraging a long term shutdown. So what you wind up getting now is a new normal of a reopening. Oh, they'll reopen. But here's what permanent reopening looks like. Permanent restrictions on your life, permanent uh, mask wearing on your face. Um, that's worse than a full shutdown because that's going to go on indefinitely. Likewise with the rioting. It, it, it appears, we don't know yet, but it appears the trajectory is it's not going to – it's likely peaked may, uh, and hopefully, but it's likely peaked, the violence. You're not going to have it spiral to the point that – it's going to be like Rodney King level in every city. But my concern is, because you know, again, that was untenable. They, he would have had to call in the military. No one would have stood for it. But what they're going to do is this. And, and this gets to the point of Republicans legitimizing and validating. Oh, the protests. Oh, they are. I mean, we have to facilitate. Like I saw one insinuate that the purpose of the National Guard wasn't to, um, I think it was Mike Lee. Yeah, Mike Lee on Twitter. The purpose of the National Guard wasn't to put down the insurrection. The purpose of the National Guard was to ensure that uh, a safe expression of the First Amendment. So you're going to have these rampaging marching, very belligerent throughout the streets. Some will get violent here and there, but it's all going to be very belligerent, very disruptive, blocking traffic, blocking commerce, which you don't have a right to do. Um, you, can, you don't have a right to rally everywhere anytime, but they're going to do that. Then you're going to have isolated beatings and incidents. It won't be like mass 5,000 people every night in every city rampaging through a street, but you'll have these retaliatory incidents. And that's how they're going to squeeze out um, Republicans who will continue to push federal legislation against cops, jailbreak, tying prosecutors' hands. Isn't that the logical endgame of Republicans half-assing a defense of our positions? That's exactly the problem. The left has a long-term goal, so it uses every, every incident as a stepping stone. We're obviously not going to have a permanent lockdown. We've accepted, as you pointed out, the premises of the lockdown. We're not going to have permanent riots. What the left did with the coronavirus is they used that as a stepping stone. They freed massive amounts of prisoners. Those prisoners, uh, those criminals built up to a critical mass, and that's much of the rioting we're seeing here. It's not about Antifa. It's not really even about Black Lives Matter. They just kind of uh, paved the way for it, and then you actually have have the career criminals who go out and do much of the looting, they tie down police forces, they demoralize police forces, they terrorize people. And then the riots get shut down um, once the demands are met, and then the demands are met, and you release more criminals, you create more of a critical mass for riots, you turn it on, you turn it off, which the left is doing. Uh, each time it's turned off, there are going to be more criminal releases, and it gets worse each time, and the left gains power each time. This is the classic playbook. They used it very effectively in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, they've used it internationally for over a century. They know exactly what they're doing, and the Republicans really do not know what they're doing. They don't understand the left. They haven't studied the left. Uh, they have no sense of history for that matter, which is the really tragic part, because they're repeating the same folly all over again. It's the Nixon administration writ large. But but Daniel, what has changed? In, in, in other words, you've been doing this for a while, and 
what I've noticed, and I find this really upsetting, Republicans were always like this to a certain extent. But we, I, I felt like even when I started my career, we did have certain deep thinkers still around. We did have a certain agenda on some issues we held the ground on. Crime was a classic example. We held, the, we held ground on, on that. That was one of the big successes. But what I'm finding now is something changed the last number of years where there is literally no vision on anything. There is like there is no purpose to this phony conservative movement where even things like crime and guns and the two are actually very linked were two issues where I felt we we actually genuinely gained if you, by any metric where we had more pro gun legislation that passed throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And actually, ironically, yet it's not really ironic, crime really went down and, you know, we didn't succeed on limiting the size and scope of government fiscal issues for sure, not social issues. Forget about that. But, you know, there were a couple issues we held the line on. I feel like something has changed where the farther to the left the the communists get, the more Republicans just like – and when I say Republicans, I mean all of them, the Fox News people, the, you know, the, the writers that have bigger names than you and I do. Why is there – there's just like – is it that they stopped feeling the relative gravity or the or the earth moving on its axis? They just it's like they're frogs in boiling water and they can't hold a certain ground from from where, you know, conservative pundits are to the left of Democrats where, where, where the Democrats were 10 years ago. Two words, social media. Bottom line is the conservative movement outsourced everything to social media, and they completely abandoned reality. We were being told by people that we could make our own reality, that if we spent enough time on social media spreading narratives, uh, those narratives would become real. And we were imitating the left in this regard. But the left, for the left, that's just one component of what they do. They didn't abandon policy. They did not abandon long-term goals. Um, yet what social media rewards is the hot take. It's um, inventing your own reality and then spreading that reality around. I mean, uh, there's an entire sub uh, movement to the conservative uh, movement, really, that specializes in that, that just invents this artificial reality in which uh, Mueller is going, to, uh, uh, is going to arrest Obama and everybody else. I mean, this kind of stuff is the product of living in an imaginary world. And the conservative movement has spent a lot of time living in that world. They're outraged that Facebook and Twitter are going to evict them from this imaginary world because this world isn't real. Um, doing things in it doesn't really accomplish very much. Uh, it convinces some people, recruits some people, uh, but in the real world where you actually do things that have consequences and you have to understand what you're doing, that doesn't work. And this is exactly what happened. Um, after the complete folly of the idea that if we um, passed amnesty for illegal aliens, they would vote for us, the conservative movement decided to move on from recruiting illegal aliens to recruiting criminals by embracing pro-crime policies, as you've discussed very frequently, um, by deciding that if we actually free the criminals and give them the vote, uh, this is totally going to be a big win for us. And it sounds like a good win on social media um, if you reply to David Axelrod or somebody by saying, you know, well, we're the ones who are actually freeing the criminals. So we must not be the racists. We're the heroes here. Uh, I mean, it's a great comeback on social media if you absolutely don't consider the consequences of what you're doing and the disastrous reality. And they don't because they live in this imaginary world in which there are no consequences, except that you actually have a good comeback. But Reality doesn't care about your comebacks. <laughs> Reality doesn't care about your comebacks. And, and that's that's a really good point. Um, and I think it explains a lot of what we're seeing because I'll, I would agree with you. I think the timing of the decline of this movement really coincides with the advent of social media. It really does. It's it's this past decade, basically. Um, when I started the previous decade, there was still some intuition. I mean, you even looked at establishment type of Republicans. They held the ground on certain issues, and this was certainly one of them that they did, um, whereas now even the so-called conservative insurgents, it's like barely anything. You barely see anything from them. I want to move this discussion on to the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that's Trump. Um what, what I almost get the impression from him, and I want to see if you have a different take on this, is that, you know, his intuition on not all but most issues is with us. And he understands that it's BS, especially you look at the crime issue, you look at what he said for his entire life on the issue. 
But he he clearly doesn't have the intellectual prowess to back it up. I mean, I'm told definitively by many people close to him that he doesn't. It's not like he combs the Internet. He might be on Twitter here and there, but he does not read on the Internet. Um, it's whatever someone sends him. So, he, he, you know, and, and this was even before he was president, didn't have time to to look at things. So my my feeling with him is he he would have potentially have been a big opportunity where on the one hand, you know, Trump's a man of many enigmas, that things that are almost contradictory, but they're kind of true at the same time with him. He has a bold, courageous side to him to fight back, but he also does like to be loved and he wants to do everything bigly. So if if we create a climate for him that, you know, this is the narrative, this is what you need to be doing, he'll try to do it bigly. But if we don't and we're left with a phony conservative narrative of, there's a racial problem in criminal justice. We're too tough on crime instead of too weak. So Trump will be like, hey, you know what? I want to do it bigly. I'm, I'm going to do jailbreak bigger than Obama. I'm going to do it bigly. And that's how you see the huge volatility with him. That So do you agree that he we had we had a healthy movement guiding him at all levels, we could have accomplished a lot. But the lack of such a movement is putting us backwards. Uh, Trump has great gut instincts. Um, again, when you go back uh, to his days, I mean, he's a New Yorker. If you're a New Yorker from who actually lived through this in the 70s and the 80s, you absolutely get it. And he gets it. But at the same time, people have this idea that because President Trump is so active on Twitter, uh, that nothing else really matters and that he's directly connected to them. Uh, basic reality, President of the United States has a huge team around him. That team is going to shape what he sees, what he experiences, what he reads about. It's going to shape his reality. And President Trump's team has obviously uh, been lacking in various areas. We've seen quite a few people come and go in the past. So, And that team really is the tunnel through which anything happens, to which anything gets done. And when that team is lacking, then the um, outcome is not going to be so great. If that team keeps pushing the agenda, which you've had in the past, that um, really was championed by libertarians, that if Republicans free all these prisoners, uh, that's actually going to win over the black vote, that's going to um, weaken the left, then... Uh, that's what you end. That's kind of what you end up with. You know, if Kim Kardashian go, is the one who's routed through into the White House, then uh, she's going to be the one who makes the case, as opposed to say the conservative victims of crime who are supposed to be there, who are supposed to be the ones making the case. So um, President Trump, like anybody else, is ultimately going to be defined by his team. Uh, presidents wrestle with their teams. President Reagan famously fought to get Mr. Gorbachev teared down this wall into the speech. Uh, every president goes through this in one way or another. Uh, president Trump is also going through this. He's wrestling with members of his team, but ultimately um, you win some things, you lose other things, and it's really about the team. No, exactly. I mean, it takes a village. It takes a movement. It You, you can't do it alone. And I think connected to that, I want to get your take on this observation. I, I found the Kavanaugh confirmation experience to be very telling. Now, let's put aside the fact that the one thing they choose to bleed over happens to be a guy who sucks. I mean, just this past week, he screwed us on another immigration case. People would be shocked at how bad he is. But that's that's a whole nother, a whole nother level of uh, perfidy, you know, in the conservative movement. But, you know, obviously, the allegations were terrible. And people wanted to fight that. And I said to myself at the end of that, I was like, damn, that's the power of actually having a movement. Like if you remember, it was the only time in recent memory, maybe there's one or two other examples, where anyone who's even marginally center right, whether it's in politics, elected politics, in media, writers, they every day work to debunk what the left were, was doing, completely uproot the premise, completely jujitsu it. And it worked. You know, we're always told that, oh, there's, there's nothing we can do, Daniel, that you'll be viewed as racist. You'll be viewed as a hater. You'll be viewed as uncaring. It's not going to go over with the people. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's a winning issue. Just make the case. Um, but if you don't, it's a self-fulfilling reality if this is all the public sees. And you actually saw a united movement, almost every single Republican, every single outside talker, and it worked. So, I mean, doesn't that show that when you actually care about something, which, again, this is somewhat of a, uh, you know, also of a false flag idolatry with the Republican judicial picks. And that's a whole nother can of worms. Um, so it, 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 it's a good uh, victory 
on an idolatry. But doesn't that demonstrate the power of a unified, coherent movement? It definitely does. And the important thing to note is that the conservative movement wasn't just taking on the left. It was taking on um, the construct of the Me Too movement, which obviously Biden has completely destroyed and which the left has destroyed in supporting him. Uh, But they took on the Me Too movement, which at the time was a golden calf. It was the idea that all women have to be believed. Uh, If a woman comes forward and accuses somebody, you have to believe her. There's no other way around it. And conservatives rejected that and Republican senators were wishy-washy, but eventually uh, they went along. When the conservative movement does have a very specific short-term focus and one that they're outraged about, one that they can uh, focus their attention on, then the conservative movement performs very well. The problem actually begins when there's something that is long-term. It begins when the left offers them some sort of false choice, when it offers them seemingly a way to one-up the left, which is um, you now have Republicans and conservatives in, embracing the Me Too movement when it comes to Biden, even though the allegations don't necessarily have that much more credibility. Sure. I mean, because everything's, you know, I need a narrative. I need a narrative. Um, want to take this back in our remaining minutes back to the riots and some of your work on the trashing of synagogues by the BLM folks. Um One of the things that I find shocking is this. To me, I look at this racial allegation and I find it to be the ultimate case of projection. So obviously people like you and I don't need to talk about race ever because we believe in justice. We believe in due process. We believe in individualism. So everyone's an individual. No one's a member of a clan based on their color of skin. So You do the crime, you do the time. Whether you're a civilian, whether you're a cop, whether you're black, whether you're white, we're going to have equal protection under the law, equal pursuit of justice, and that's it. We never have to discuss it. But they have to poke a hole in that because they don't want equality. So they go and generate a narrative. Oh, no, no, there's disproportionate this this number happening to blacks. Well, so then we have to unfortunately get involved in that and deconstruct that. Well, actually, the opposite is true. Actually, you know, per the crime committed, they actually have an under-incarceration rate. I mean, we have tons of hard data on this. Um, actually, the police interactions, if anything, they're 10 times more scared of of um, using deadly force against them, even when their lives are in danger, versus dealing with a white criminal just because of the way society um, disproportionately and, and in, in a very unequal way uh, deals with the races. Isn't this the ultimate case of projection to somehow suggest that there's this systemic racism in the country in policing at large? Never mind that like 50 percent of most urban police forces are you know, composed of black black officers. But um, I don't know about you, but I know I mean, you certainly sound like you're from New York. You're, you, I know you do live in L.A., so you see both the East Coast, West Coast. I you know, they're going to call me names and call me everything for saying this, but you know, I don't hide the truth. I don't know anyone. And I don't know anyone who knows people who are white that in this day and age in 2020 that have a violent dehumanizing hatred towards blacks. Okay. I just, I'm I'm sure it exists. There's dark areas of the web on all sides and you could find terrible things. But if you look at among, and again, we view people as individuals, we, we, we don't work like this, but we're in their game that this is all about race. It's the ultimate case of projection, because while it's certainly not a majority of African-Americans, there is clearly for anyone to see a measurable amount of anti-white and anti-Jewish animus in certain inner cities among certain you know populations of blacks. Could you talk about some of your work on this? Talk about New York, L.A., what you're seeing. To start with, the Minneapolis Police Department, the narrative says is racist, is one of the most progressive in the country. Um, Its current leader actually came through from internal affairs. I got started actually suing the department for racial discrimination and won. So the idea that this department, which has been all about diversity, is racist, is ridiculous. And the idea that this narrative actually defines the national police forces as racist is also ridiculous. Now, we do obviously have racism in this country. We've recently had two violent racist attacks by the black Hebrew Israelite hate group, which, you know, people occasionally see in New York and Philly and a few other places, uh, preaching absolute vile hatred for white people, for Jewish people on the street. Uh, They're very much present uh, now in the riots. They've been on viral videos 
um, getting white liberals to actually kneel and kiss their feet, which is something they like to do. Uh, that's actually blatant racism, and yet this is the same hate group that was present um, with the Covington case, which the media defended, which the Washington Post and New York Times both wrote puff pieces about. You have absolute hate groups that are black supremacists that receive unfailing positive coverage from the media that are kingmakers in politics. You can talk about Al Sharpton or Farrakhan, who has met repeatedly with members of the Congressional Black Caucus, including back in the day Barack Obama. And you can talk about the fact that um, you have you uh, during these riots in L.A., you had mass vandalism of synagogues um, between six or seven synagogues were vandalized. Three Jewish religious schools were also vandalized. Multiple businesses. You have store owners reporting that people were going down the street um, cursing Jews. And yet there's been almost no media coverage about this whatsoever, except in the Jerusalem Post. And, you know, why is an Israeli paper supposed to be covering something that the U.S. media should be covering? And yet the media very much picks and chooses which kinds of racial incidents it focuses on. It decided that the George Floyd case is about racism. Um, likewise, it decided that multiple attacks on Jewish institutions are not about racism. And this is the reality that the media manufactures and people who buy into the media frame end up repeating it back without really dealing with what's going on, which is really what we've been talking about. You, you know, that, that that's a really good point. Um, you got to send me some of those links. That, that was a good idea to go to the Israeli media because I didn't know about some of the stuff you were saying. I mean, I suspected it. Um but you wouldn't you wouldn't see it. And, and that's the sick irony here. Like I keep saying, stop conflating gruesomeness of an act with being racially motivated or motivated by racial animus. They're, they're different things. It doesn't make it less or more. It's just it's just a fact pattern. I mean, you know, it's like in this country, you could murder someone, but just don't say a racial epithet while you're doing it. So, I mean, in this case, like, you know, we'll, we'll see the details. We'll see what comes out. But, you know, certainly the video um, does indicate, uh, you know, gross, uh, disproportionate and gratuitously long, um, drawn out brutality that, that was likely unnecessary. And again, you need a trial, but they're getting their justice. They're very, you know, charged second degree murder Four of them are now charged. Um, but that's different from saying the guy was like, Hey, let me go kill a black man today. Like there's no evidence of anything he said. Um, to at least two of the cops, are one is one appears to be Asian, one appears to be black, who, um, according to the local media, g cut his teeth in the community by working with Somali refugees. Um, there's no way you could say it was racially motivated. Um, anyone who understands the psychology behind pr police brutality, it usually comes from a specific guy who has a record, which this guy might have had one. Um, they just have a certain disposition. Whites talk about it all the time. I mean, it's not a majority of cops, but there's they exist and they have these run-ins with them. Um, and especially if there was a struggle, which there appears to have been at some point, you know, they act out of passion. It's, it's not, it's not race. Like the notion that a white person who would have done that, he would have acted different. There's no evidence of that. Um, I ha I know someone who um, worked at some point in the prosecutor's office there and they find it very unusual that the charging document, the um, complaint criminal complaint does not have race on there. It's always identified when they're identifying suspects. It is not on there, which is very interesting because again, at least two of the cops would be considered in the, in the media parlance as racial minorities. Um, and that's the thing. They just run away with it. Whereas what you're saying on the other side of the ledger, we're always seeing racial stuff. I mean, I see it here where I live in Baltimore all the time. Could you talk a little bit about, um, your your former hometown, New York City, this epidemic of anti-Jewish attacks we had late last year, beginning of this year, that seemed to only um, be suspended because of the virus. You know, I naturally, as you well know, I am repulsed by racial arguments. I just like, you know, to me, you assault someone, you go and beat someone severely on the street, you should get hard, hard time for that, which they don't get. I don't care what motivated you and what names you called, right? That That's how I act. But again, in, in this religion, it's all about race. It's not about, I mean, you know, you could call someone a racial name, you get the death penalty, but you could beat them to within an inch of their life and, and you get out of jail. I get it. But so naturally, my thought was, I don't know New York well, I don't know the geography well, but I figured, look, there aren't too many whites living in some of those parts of Brooklyn and 
to me was, you know, it's just these are criminals and it happens to be these are the only whites that, you know, are are there. So they're being attacked, they're store owners or whatever. But doesn't there appear to be more lurking behind that? There definitely is. Um, you, as you mentioned, there was a rash of anti-Semitic crimes, um, violent attacks. Now, also more interesting, uh, we recently you had a rash of anti-Asian attacks, which the media, of course, very much blew up and discussed quite a bit. And uh, Senate Democrats even introduced this resolution uh, listing some of these attacks and blaming them on President Trump because he used the term Chinese virus. Now, the interesting thing is when I actually took a closer look at these attacks, um, a lot of them are going on in New York, which is not surprising. Uh, pretty much all of them were carried out by minorities. Most of them were carried out. Um, I mean, you can actually see the viral videos. If you track them down, they were carried out by black men. Uh, it's not always completely clear that they were motivated by um, a kind of racism, but in many cases, they very clearly are. There are references to the coronavirus and all that. And yet that's the part that the media suppressed because it completely destroys the narrative, which is about blaming President Trump and blaming uh, the term Chinese virus for it. So when you actually look at that, when you actually see, look at racist hate crimes, uh, you very invariably see that they do not fit the traditional narrative. Now, as you mentioned, there is a huge gap between actual crimes in which people are injured, in which property is really damaged, and things that are like described as bias intimidation, which are over the place and basically completely meaningless. Uh, police departments uh, put in bias intimidation charges uh, to rack up their quotas because local police departments have a quota of a certain amount of bias crimes that they're supposed to rack up. And the states back to the Obama administration, I'm sure you know about it. I won't dwell on it too long. So you have these attacks on Asian people. They are largely being carried out by um, black men. And really, they're the sort of people who would probably be carrying out attacks in general. And yet the media doesn't discuss it. Um, the conservative movement, frankly, has very little interest in research like this, uh, which is something I've been butting my head against for quite a while. And the narrative remains that... Um, the narrative remains that it's um, describing this as the Chinese virus as the Wuhan virus is the really the problem or isn't it the problem, rather than why do we have this kind of crime wave in the first place? And, you know, you mentioned police brutality. Um, obviously, police brutality is something that happens when you have a lot of police, when you have a militarized police forces. But why do we have militarized police forces? This is actually right now, this is why we actually have them. Uh, this is the same thing I was saying after Ferguson when a number of prominent conservatives were saying, well, why do the departments have all this military gear? Well, they have it because we had massive riots back in L.A. back in the day. That, that's actually what began militarizing police departments, creating SWAT teams, all the rest of this stuff. Um, the reason we actually have militarized police is because we have riots. This is why. Yep. I, I mean, this is what people don't understand that I, I say it all the time and I find it amazing. They're using reality against us, but in one side. So they're like, there's a disproportionate number of, you know, police shootings of blacks or something. Now, there's actually more police shootings of whites, but they want to say when you adjust for the population, it's more. But here's the problem. If you adjust for the crime levels and therefore the natural police interactions, it's much, much, much more uh, with whites, again, as the University of Michigan and Maryland uh, found, because they're actually too scared to fight back even legitimately um, against black suspects, because um, it has been found that if you if you look at the per capita population and the shootings, um, blacks in New York City are 20 times more likely, 20 times more likely to commit a shooting, um, 50 times more likely in Chicago. So Therefore, the police interactions, a police shooting will mo most likely be called onto the scene of a shooting or a violent interaction. Doesn't, you know, you could beat someone with your hands with a car with a lot of different things. Um, that's when they'll be called onto the scene. So a disproportionate number of police interactions are going to be with them. Um, the, the small minority of brutality incidents that are going to always going to be endemic when you have you know 375 million police interactions a year and you know you you accord people this much power mainly necessary so the you know more unsavory elements that you have in every profession the, you you'll have cases of abuse they're not as a percentage they're remarkably low but the incidents of underwhelming force are going to be even even more and and like what a lot of people don't appreciate is yeah, in the abstract, I don't like, oh, the militarized police. You know, I think a lot of us are, you know, have a heightened sensitivity with the stupid lockdown enforcement and everything and what was going on there. 
But the reality is, put yourself in their shoes. Like, on the one hand, come on, Daniel, this is America. But if you look at what some of them do, it's like Fallujah. I mean, the grisly surrounding of cars and pulling people out. So you're a cop and you're you're not in a war zone. So you can't just shoot at first instinct. It's You're in a very tough position. Also, Daniel, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Mo- most of them nowadays, more than ever, are on very dangerous drugs. So there's no deterrent. Whatever little common sense they had is out the window. And you have to somehow diffuse them and neutralize them without harming them, but ensuring you don't get harmed or killed and assuring, ensuring someone else does it. That's a lot easier said than done. And then if you add that the guy is like seven feet, and I'm not saying that was appropriate in this case, but certainly in the in the other cases like Ferguson, it was very much true. Um, a guy is very big and strong, plus on um, psychostimulants. Like, dude, I mean, what are you going to do with that? Uh, being a cop is probably one of the toughest jobs around. You, especially in this kind of frame, you go out and you don't know if you're going to come back, and you go, don't know if you're going to come back with your reputation intact. Um, a few days ago, I actually did an article tracking just how many police officers have been injured around the country in these riots. It's very incomplete, but I think at this point the number is past 500. Uh, those are war zone numbers, and there's a reason the media is not playing this up. It's playing up the number of reporters who were injured. It's not playing up the fact that over 500 police uh, law enforcement people have been wounded. Uh, everything from being hit by bricks and rocks in the head, being hit by fireworks, being um, shot at, multiple shootings at this point around the country, uh, is not being discussed at all. And now police forces, as you kind of mentioned earlier, are actually have actually become much more diverse. There's been a big drive to diversify our police forces and precisely to um, evade these accusations of racism. Yet the media completely ignores the fact that ignores the fact that you have a more diverse group of officers on the scene in the Floyd case. Um, you had a African-American female sergeant in the Garner case. And I mean, we had this with the Freddie Gray case. Uh, the media creates this perception that all the police officers are white. It emphasizes the white police officers. It de-emphasizes or completely ignores uh, the race of other officers on the scene, um, creating this completely false reality. So no no matter how diverse police departments get, uh, because the reality is white cops, black cops, Asian cops are all dealing with the same things. They're reacting the same way. And there have been surveys that really um, African-American officers feel more free to use force in cases like this. You were discussing the whole underwhelming force issue. African-American officers feel more um, free to use force without being accused of racism. Uh, actually, some uh, some of the officers who were accused of racism in this round of rioting uh, were African-American. And, you know, I mean, we've had uh, two African-American officers, uh, one African-American officer, one retired African-American police captain who were shot and killed in these riots. So it's um, they yeah. very much know what is at stake and they want to protect their communities. And just actually pulling back the frame a bit, um, in every case, when you have organized crime that's in a particular group, whether it was the old Jewish mobsters, um, the Italian mob, the um, Irish gang, so on and so forth, they begin by preying on their own communities. That's the case in the black community. Uh, the biggest victims, as I know you've mentioned many times, of black criminals are the people, black people actually living in the neighborhood. That's the reality. It's always been the reality with particular groups that have crime uh, springing up. So they're the biggest beneficiaries of fighting crime. If Republicans, again, want to win over black voters, they have to show them that they can clean up their communities. And President Trump seemed to understand this. A lot of Republicans, a lot of the conservative movement, unfortunately, does not. And they and they convinced him to flip. I mean, he literally tweeted this a few years ago, what you just said. And, and this is what's so frustrating, because you could have your stupid talking point and your policy victory, too. I mean, again, for us, we don't need to talk about race ever because true justice, it, it shouldn't even have to come up. But if you want to play that game, I mean, like you just said, half the cops killed were were um were African-American. You say over 500 were injured. I bet a, a tremendous amount of them weren't white. Um, NYPD is is has a lot of black cops, but also a lot of other ethnicities, in particular in New York. But really, I mean, it's reflective of every major urban center. The the police forces are like that. In Baltimore, I know it's about fifty percent black. Um, and as you pointed out, rightfully uh, in the Freddie Gray case, which they didn't even literally didn't touch the guy, didn't do anything. That was the point. They they said they they didn't buckle him. That, that you know that was that was the issue. He self immolated. Um, half the cops were black. Uh, six cops in Atlanta were just uh, arrested um, by this idiot Howard, the Fulton County DA. You might 
want to check into that. That might want to be your next piece of work of a piece of investigative journalism. Um, he's up for re-election. He has a lot of corruption charges against him. Uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigations is looking into him. Sexual, three sexual uh, harassment allegations, um, corruption, and you know, use, misuse of funds. A lot, a lot of stuff going on there. So that that looks very dirty. They were, I think, five out of six of the cops were um, were African American. You know, so you have your talking point, and, and, and like, this is what kills me. I worked a little bit with um, Brian Kemp's folks in Georgia. He was one of the only governors to run on the opposite, to actually run on being tough on crime. And he was pushing an anti-gang bill, to, you know, making it easier to prosecute gangs across counties and everything. It wasn't like a massive mandatory minimum bill, God forbid. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, it was, it was very technical. And it's like all these coke groups, I mean, forget about the left, but the phony right and the Republicans of the legislature blocked it. I mean... If you want to know what is single-handedly killing the most blacks so much that it literally drops their life expectancy, it's the Bloods and the Crips and similar. It's, it's the gang violence. That is the that is the big issue that accounts for the lion's share of murder in this country. It's the black gangs, somewhat Hispanic mixed in, but black victims are so disproportionate. I mean, you want to talk about disparate impact? That's it, Daniel. Any closing thoughts on this and or anything else you've been working on? Well, I would just mention the left claims to care about gun violence. This is the source of gun violence. Most gun violence in this country statistically is gang violence. And I just close by mentioning my article from today, um, which actually chronicles the um, Black Lives Matter and Tifa riots, uh, their impact on churches and synagogues across the country, including what I feel is emblematic with um, thugs defacing a cathedral and writing God is dead on the walls. So um, to them, God really is that there's no moral center here. And when conservatives imitate the left, um, they lose their moral center as well. There you have it, folks. When conservatives lose their center, they imitate the left and we got a problem. Um, thanks so much, Daniel. Folks, you could uh, uh, follow Daniel Greenfield on Sultan Kanish at Sultan Kanish on Twitter um, and go to Front Page Magazine. You could see loads of articles, like dozens of articles every few weeks. Unbelievable. Um, great work. Keep up the good work. We'll speak to you later. Folks, we're out of time. We'll see you later tomorrow. Keep yourself armed, keep safe, and keep knowledgeable. Keep knowledgeable.